I'm going, going back, back to Cali, Cali. Okay. Actually, today's guest recently moved from her Bay Area home to Charleston, South Carolina, but I had Jill Raleigh on the podcast in episode one. That's right. Numero uno back in October, 2016. What I love most about hosting this show is hearing real world stuff that works straight from the practitioner's mouths. And Jill is literally one of the best. You'll enjoy this one. The concierge doesn't just respond with, here are the five great restaurants. They figure out, like, what do you like, what your interests are, and then they make the recommendation based on that. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown, the only weekly show where we talk about the attitude, action, and ability that gets sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. It's time, it's time, it's time, it's Sales Sooner's time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Paul Graham, who says, looking at things from other people's points of view is practically the secret of success. My guest today is Jill Rowley, and just so you know, she isn't a salesperson. She's an information concierge. Not only is Jill an advocate for the transformation to social selling, she's kind of become the face of educating and building relationships with buyers on social networks well before ever trying to sell them something. All joking aside, Jill spent 52 quarters in software sales while building the marketing automation space at Eloqua. Her success there led to her being dubbed the Eloqueen and being named Employee of the Year, a rare accolade given to salespeople. She now sits on the board of several companies, including Affinio, TrackMaven, HubSpot, and several others. All right, be sure to check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com. But now, let's get to the conversation where Jill sings happy birthday to herself. Sure. So um, tomorrow, I turn 44 years old. Happy so birthday. Happy birthday to me. Um, I am Gen X. Uh, I have a baby boomer husband. And I have two Gen Z millennial boys who are both at Arizona State University. And I have two Gen Z, otherwise known as iGen, because they grew up with iPads and iPhones. And I, they're, they're middle school and high school. And I have one doggie. His name is Toby. And so outside of work, I'm mainly doing stuff with my family. Yeah, I was going to say, when you're not at work, you're still really busy is what I'm hearing. Yes. Always <laughs> always be busy. ABB, always be busy, Jim. I think there's going to be a few acronyms today. I like that one as well. So, But Jill, let's go way back before we jump in. Let's go way back. Tell me, how did you get into sales? I feel like I've been in sales my whole life, right? So, And I think pretty much everybody is in sales. Uh, Daniel Pink wrote the book, To Sell as Human. And whether you're trying to get someone to fund your company or... Um, join your meeting or um, uh, be part of uh, your association, you're selling, right? You're, you're trying to, to persuade someone to do something that you want them to do. Uh, I sold Girl Scout cookies when I was young. I raised money for um, my cheer program. So we sold Krispy Kreme donuts. And I, when I went to university, University of Virginia, I studied in the McIntyre School of Business. It was the undergraduate business school at UVA. And so I studied finance and accounting, computer science, marketing, entrepreneurship, 
and leadership, but nothing on sales. Because universities, even today, most of them don't teach sales. And so I got out of college and went into consulting and spent six years thinking I was going to become a partner and realized that's not what I wanted to do. I really wanted to do something that was more selling the same thing over and over again than creating a statement of work and doing uh, chargeability and race times hours. And it just, it just wasn't what I wanted to do. So I um, left consulting and spent quite a number of months trying to get a job in sales. No one wanted to hire me, Jim. Can you believe it? Yeah, that's it blows my mind. No one wanted to hire me because they're like, we need, I was six years out of college and they're like, we need to hire someone who has experience in sales. And I kept saying, well, if I don't, if someone doesn't give me the opportunity to get the experience, how then do you get it? Right. how do I get it? Yeah. And finally, Salesforce.com, um, I was one of the first 25 salespeople there. And they finally took a chance on me. And I made President's Club my first year. And I was the number one mid-market sales rep at Salesforce my second year. I have always knocked it out of the park when it comes to making my number in sales. That's awesome. I've only known you, Jill, since your time at Eloqua uh, when you were, like I said, dubbed the Ella Queen. So I, did, I had no idea about that experience uh, with, the, with Salesforce. So that's interesting to know. How, talk to me about that. So you, you talk about the 52 quarters in, in software sales and this phrase, information concierge. What does that even mean? So think about a concierge at a hotel, right? You go and you need a recommendation for a restaurant. And the concierge says, well, what are you in the mood for? Do you want Italian? Do you want American? Do you want Asian? Do you want Indian? You know, what are you in the mood for? Uh, do you have a particular price range that you want to stay in? Do you want to go fancy or do you want to go casual? So it's, do you want to be in a certain area of the city? So it's this, it's this, the concierge doesn't just respond with here are the five great restaurants. They figure out like, what do you like, what your interests are? And then they make the recommendation based on that. They might also say, well, well, I know about this great concert tonight. Maybe you would be interested. So they're, they're offering something that you might want that you didn't even ask about um, because they care about you and they want to make sure that you have a great experience. That from a from applying that to sales, a lot of times I'm providing information to my buyer that isn't directly relevant to what I'm actually selling. And a lot of times that's because I recognize that the buyer might not be ready for what I am selling. For example, social selling. So social selling actually requires that the organization uh has someone in place that is a mobilizer, that drives change, that facilitates cross-functional marketing, sales, training, uh, conversation. So, and, and we're seeing it being owned by a function called sales enablement, which in and of itself is still an emerging function. So if the organization is new to sales enablement or doesn't have sales enablement, I might share content about that because I think that putting that in place first will set them up for better success to do social selling. So I might delay my deal, but in the end, it's for the benefit of the customer 
and helping them solve what I think they need to solve first, as opposed to buying my product or services. Does that make sense? It, it's starting to. So I want to break it down a little bit further. As you know, Jill, we break this show down into, into three sections. We talk about the behaviors, the attitude, and the technique. So I'm going to start first with the behaviors and dig in to what you were just talking about. And behavior is just simply what you do. So let, let's dive specifically into that. How do you do that? What are you doing on a daily, weekly basis with this social selling concept? Yeah, sure. So what I'm doing on a daily, weekly basis, I am constantly consuming content that would be relevant to my buyers. So that might be sales enablement content. It might be sales performance management content. It might be sales transformation content. It might be digital transformation content. Um, and then on the flip side, it might be content related to their business, their industry, their customers, the world in which they live. So I can get very specific around GE. So GE, it's an industrial company that sells jet engines and oil turbines. And uh, they are transforming from an industrial company to becoming um, the industrial internet company, the industrial internet of, of things company. They are building out digital capabilities um, around not just the machine, but the data from the machine and how do you leverage the data from the machine to make better decisions about uh, machine productivity. So I am, because they're such an important customer of mine and because this digital transformation in the industrial internet of things is so important to them, I'm consuming content about that. And then from a behavior perspective, not only am I consuming this content, I'm dripping it onto them. I am sharing, I'm the information concierge. I am sharing this content that I would be, that I think would be helpful to them, either via email or Twitter or LinkedIn, where they're actually learning. So I think about the, 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 where they're learning and if it would be appropriate for me to share this kind of content. Um, I might share their content. I might amplify their content. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a behavior of always be learning and then always be sharing. So that makes sense, but I, I'm going to split maybe two different directions here. One, I'm thinking that's a lot of information overload. How on earth are you spending so much time just consuming that much content? And then I'm kind of on the other side of this looking at maybe like an imposter syndrome where, well, who am I to share that information with this person? Sure. So why don't we go with the overload first? And here's the reality is that sales is changing because buying has changed. And the buyer now is able to learn a whole lot more before ever, ever having to engage with a salesperson. Buyers are allergic to salespeople. Not really salespeople, but they're allergic to being sold. And so they can avoid you now for a lot longer in their buying process. I think it's called unlimited access to voicemail, right? Unlimited access to the internet. <laughs> sure. Right? Buyers, it, it, it literally, everything is one Google search away. So I have to be more relevant and helpful and uh, more value focused to get the attention of my buyer. So it used to be in sales, like you had to have really good sales acumen. 
you needed to know how to prospect, how to do discovery, how to run a demo, how to handle objections, how to do a proposal, how to negotiate. So that's table stakes today. If you don't have strong sales acumen, you're done. On top of that, because of the ever empowered Miss Buyer, you have to have more business acumen because companies are in, mo everybody is going through transformation right now, digital transformation, and business models are changing, go to market strategies are changing, uh, customer, uh, the, the demographic of your customer is changing. And so this business acumen of how, how, how your product or solution fits in into everything else that's going on in the organization is important. And then customer acumen, know thy buyer is one of my mantras. I need to know my buyer at a Jim Brown level who loves flying monkeys. That's right. <laughs> and cheap trick concerts, <laughs> right? Like Absolutely. I, need, I need to know you at that level, right, Jim Brown? You got it. I need to know you at a persona-based, like what is your role within the organization? So you're head of sales, not head of marketing, not head of IT. So I'm not going to talk to you about sub-second pagination at an API level, um, you know, ETL loads and, uh, you know, programming interfaces. That's not what I'm going to talk about you with you. I'm going to talk more about sales productivity and sales performance and conversion rates and, uh, you know, uh, sales, sales enablement and sales operations and how those things make, make the whole um, uh, function more, more efficient and effective. So I have to know you at a persona level. I have to know you at a company level. I need to understand you know, what your organization is doing, who your customers are, what you're trying to accomplish. And I have to understand it at an industry level. So yeah, it's overload for the buyer. It's overload for the seller but you're competing for the for the buyer's attention and so it, the you got to up your game and and you have to you, you have to be more uh helpful in a way that solves your business problem and and really adds value does that make sense it does but so when you're when you're talking about this let's uh, are are you talking about a brand new cold prospect and and maybe I'm even using the wrong word with what you're talking about but how are you creating these conversations from the very beginning, how are you opening up a new relationship? Yeah, so you know this will come down to what role in sales you play, right? So if you are a BDR or an SDR, business development rep or sales development rep, you're more junior in the organization, you're less experienced, you have less um, uh, business acumen, and, 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 you know, you might be a 24 year old, two years out of college person, and you are assigned very specific, uh, territory or tasks or target lists or, and you are usually told, um, how many touches you have to make. So if it's an inbound, you have to do five emails and five calls. Um, and you're measured on the number of appointments that you, that you set. So that's different from you're a named account rep or a strategic account rep who has, you know, maybe 10 accounts. So it, you have to take my, my in context of, of your role within the sales organization. And that's how you determine exactly how much time you spend in, you know, getting to know the customer and so forth. Does, is that making sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. I, I want to, kind of take us into the second 
section, the attitude. And the attitude, Jill, is this is just how you feel about what you do. And now I want to come back to this concept of the imposter syndrome. One of the things I've heard you say before is, you know, you're trying to transform the, the, sleevy, the, the I'm sorry, the sleazy, slimy, slick back hairdo image of sales and move it into the 21st century. Um, but, but again, I want to hit on this imposter syndrome. A lot of people that I see come into the, the sales role that don't have a network yet, that um, you know, haven't built up their personal credibility. How are they to say, okay, it is okay for me to reach out and share this content uh, and, and be kind of a subject matter expert? Yeah, so if we take the attitude, you, you have to care. You can't be in sales if you're just trying to crush your number and be number one in your organization. If that's your end game is to crush, crush your number, be number one, and you know, and and you're focused on the commission check, then you're you're going to be a bad sales professional, in particular in today's world. You have to genuinely care about helping your buyer do whatever it is they need to do. So whether it's you know reduce costs, uh, automate manual processes, um, you know troubleshoot uh, manufacturing defects. Um, whatever it is, you have to care at a human level to help that person genuinely. I think that requires passion about what it is you're selling or to whom you're selling or the, the, the solution uh, and, and, and what the outcomes of that solution are. So the attitude, um, imposters will be discovered um, more and faster than ever before because it, what you know that that digital presence if you you know and you know jim i think you've heard me say if you suck offline you'll suck more online oh yeah so don't suck right i, I just think there's 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 just almost no room anymore for the imposter or um the fake or uh the trickery um so i think you have to care and i think you have to have passion it makes sense. And I've bought in, Jill, to what you're talking about for several years now. Uh, I, like I said, I've known you since Oracle uh, acquired Eloqua. So I want to talk about that real quick. What was the attitude like coming from Eloqua into Oracle and how were you received inside the organization? Sure. So the, the I remember four months before the acquisition news was announced, I was actually on the NASDAQ celebrating Eloqua going public. So although I was just an individual quota carrying sales rep for the 10 years I had been there, um, I was, I had won employee of the year in 2011. No salesperson in the history of probably many companies have ever won employee of the year because we, the, the thinking is that we get rewarded with commission checks or president's club trips. So and, and that we're, you know, coin operated and that all we care about is, you know, money. And that's not who I am. Right. Um, so I, you know, I was so committed to Eloqua. And and when I got the news that Oracle was acquiring us, it was like FML, duck my life with an F. <laughs> because I first off, my number one customer was Salesforce. My number one customer was salesforce.com. And I knew that Oracle acquiring Eloqua was going to have a negative impact on my number one customer. 
So my first text that morning was to Lisa Lee at Salesforce saying, I'm going to ensure that our executives are reaching out to your executives as soon as possible, right? Because I just knew that this was going to be problematic. That's huge. Yeah. And I cared about Lisa as a human and I didn't want her world to be messed up. So I, I also was like, I'm done. I, I, I said, there's not, a, there's not a day in my life that I will carry a bag at Oracle because I know the, the, the culture and I'd seen enough Oracle salespeople and the tactics that they use that that wasn't what I was going to do. Um, I'd actually kind of already been ready to move out of a quota carrying sales role anyway. I just didn't know what I was going to do because I'd never done the manager, director, senior director, VP, SVP path. So, and you don't go from being a rep to an SVP and I didn't want to be an SVP. I didn't, I want to be as close to the customer as possible. So I just wasn't sure what was next for me. And then, so I was just kind of taking a quarter to, cause the transaction, the acquisition was going to close April 1. So I figured I had until April 1 to find a new thing and then, and then I would leave. Well, Oracle came to me in February and said, we are building a sales academy. And we're gonna we're gonna build a best in class sales training academy, and we're going to in fact hire 500 college graduates, and they're gonna be the first you know group of of uh, college graduate new hires that we're going to train new to business, new to sales, new to Oracle, new to their product, and we want you, Jill Rowley, we want you to build our social selling program. And Jim, I was like, wow. I It's a huge compliment. Can't even believe that Oracle knows how to spell social. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, yeah. And and so I, you know, I did a lot of, you know, thinking and speaking with various folks at Oracle to ensure that they were actually committed to this. And it ultimately decided for me to get inside the belly of at that time a $37 billion company and which I'd never worked for before, um, to see how you know things work at scale and get that enablement and training experience um, on a global you know role. I, I I went to India, I went to Ireland, um, I was supposed to go to Australia right before I was terminated. Um, you know, it was just an opportunity that I didn't want to pass up. And I don't regret a single minute of my time I spent at Oracle. I learned a ton. And I actually met a lot of really great people too. And Jill, I feel like a lot of those people that you're talking about, they welcomed you with open arms saying, oh my gosh, she's here. Finally, something's going to change. Finally, we might be able to do this. Absolutely. The uh, it was, you know, a breath of fresh air, if you will, because they they thought that I might be the answer to not having to make 100 cold calls a week, uh, or sorry, 250 cold calls a week. Um, that you know that wasn't working for them, and they had figured out a way to you know basically trick the system to do auto dialer stuff that it made it look like they were making the calls that they were required to make, but they actually weren't making the calls that they were required to make. The reps just didn't want to waste their time making calls that, you know, people are doing the, the reps are doing call, email, call, email, call, email. 
and the buyers are doing ignore, delete, ignore, delete, ignore, delete. So there was definitely, you know, a lot of like excitement around the program. And while I was building how we were going to, you know, train and enable the sales force, I was also having to sell um, leadership uh, that this was something that, you know, why was Oracle going to do this? What were we going to do and how are we going to do it? So I was evangelizing at that senior executive level, trying to you know, work with marketing as well on how they were going to support the program from a content perspective. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there was there was a lot of excitement around what I was at Oracle to do. And people thought that I actually, if anyone could could make it work. It was going to be you. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think the tenure was something, you know, around about 10 months, 17 days, give or take. Right. And you were terminated. What happened? Yeah. What happened? Yeah, I was terminated. Um, you know, it was always a culture clash. It was, it was Jim. It was always a culture clash. Like I come from a a, a, a SaaS DNA, which software as a service, where it's a subscription and the customer can quit at any time. So I come from. You always have to be customer centered, centric, and obsessed because you could lose that customer at any time. Um, that wasn't the culture of Oracle and, you know, Oracle is all about being number one in every category, you know, crushing the competition, uh, you know, buy the business if you have to. And that's just a very different culture. Um, I was also trying to, you know, give every employee a voice and allow employees to, um, uh, share their personalities and voices and knowledge and expertise and passions in social. And it just really just that that is such a massive change for Oracle. You know, PR rules the roost um, where it's all about control, control the message, um, uh, control uh, communication, control. And that just it just didn't it, it. It was a disconnect. It was a it was a clash. And, you know, ultimately, I, I was not media certified and I kept asking to get media trained so that I would, you know, be able to better follow the rules. But, you know, and I, and I had never been in a role that wasn't an individual quota carrying sales role. So I just didn't know how media and all of that worked at the time. And I made mistakes, some innocently and maybe some not so innocently. Um, and, and the mistakes were just two against the Oracle way that ultimately, um, you know, I needed to be terminated. They had just bought the company you worked for, for nearly a billion dollars, asked you to come in and do lead the social selling initiative, and then essentially fired you for being social. It, it still blows my mind. I remember seeing the news that day. Uh, and it was just, it was fascinating. So Crazy, but bigger and better things have come of that. Uh, Jill, I want to take us now into the technique section, and this is how you do what you do. So that's where I want to lead us down. Are you using tools to, to, to manage this process? How are you managing that flow of communication both into you and out of you to your customers, where they're at in the process? I, I mean, just it, again, it seems like overload. Talk to me about that. So it's twofold, right? So I think of social as how does it embed into the existing uh, process, methodology, workflow, right? So how do you embed social into that? Meaning if you're doing, um, if you're, you, you've got a new account that you're trying to break into, 
um, how do you leverage digital and social to find the right people in that company? Well, duh, LinkedIn, right? <laughs> um, advanced search in LinkedIn will, will get you to just about anybody um, with 400 and almost 50 million members on the, on the network. Um, and then I look at, well, if that, if those individuals are on Twitter, um, then I, 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 I look them up on Twitter because I can usually learn a little bit more about their personality on Twitter because, you know, on LinkedIn, pretty much all business on Twitter, you know, people will, will tweet about, you know, uh, that they ran in a race that they, um, uh, uh I don't know that they went on a trip, whatever. So you get more personal um, on Twitter. So there's the, there's the social embedding it into the workflow and the routine, but then there's the non-scripted. And I think this is what mainly troubles sales leaders all over the world. You know, the 55 year old white guy, you're spending his time on the golf course, expensive steak dinners. You know, he is not digital native. He's a lot of times not even digital um, uh, savvy. And, and this is just not, you know, the way that, that he operates. And so the, the, the fluidity of social whereby I'll give you a very specific example. And it is, it's a very senior level example. Um, GE is a customer of mine. I have been working with GE since 2014. I love GE. I am a student of their digital transformation. I listen to Jeff Immelt give speeches on the weekends, you know, when I'm on a run, I, 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 you know, anytime Beth Comstock, their, their um, vice chair and of growth and innovation tweets, I'm notified in real time. Um, I, I am immersed in all things GE because they are that important to me. Um, there's a new project going on that I want to be part of. And I, there was an article that I read that GE just won number one uh, corporate university. Crotonville, their, 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 their learning and development is awesome. They invest in their employees continuously. They have amazing leadership um, training. They have awesome women um, networking events. I mean, they just really invest in their people. And so I wanted to congratulate them, right, for number one corporate university. And so I took a screenshot of the award and I tagged a number of people at GE that I wanted them to know that I was thinking about them. And the CIO of GE, of all of GE retweeted my tweet. Wow. So I knew, right? I knew he was on Twitter. So I DM'd him. It, I was lucky enough that he follows me on Twitter. I DM'd him on Twitter, direct message, and, and just said, hey, been talking to a few folks about this new initiative. Would love to catch up with you. He said, I'm at a conference. I'm available at five today. Boom. I said, okay, what's your email? I'll put a, put a calendar, you know, invite in into you. He sent me his cell phone number um, right before our call, like three minutes before our call. I'm like, I want to make sure that he actually shows up to the call, right? Yeah. So I'm like looking at his Twitter feed and he had retweeted um, something that this woman had tweeted about an article that he had written in TechCrunch about Minecraft. And I read the article really quickly. There was a, there was a line in the article that really resonated. So I quickly retweeted that with the quote from his article. And uh, just making sure that, you know, boom, right, that he maybe sees the alert that I retweeted that and we get on the phone and it was awesome. I mean, it was so awesome. The CIO of GE. 
and you open that up via Twitter. Yeah. It's crazy. That's right. crazy. And, it, and increasingly more, that is how I'm actually, a lot of, you know, I, 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 I give the 55-year-old white guy leading sales a hard time, but I, I am seeing more C-level executive interaction and engagement happening on Twitter and, uh, and on, uh, on LinkedIn as well. So you say that, Jill, but yet it seems as though every B2B software SaaS company out there is running the exact same sales playbook. You know, uh, they've seen it work once. Let's just copy, rinse, and repeat. And you've already said, call, email, call, email. Buyer responds with ignore, delete, ignore, delete. How do we, how do we change that? How do we move, I guess, upwards? Yeah. I mean, you've got salespeople who are good making the changes that they need to make on their own. They're, they're just, they're just doing it right. Cause they're good and they need to make their number. And so they're figuring it out, but it's really when you, leadership needs to look at it at an organizational level. And what, what I can't believe, cause I, you know, I wear a lot of hats and I'm involved in a lot of different companies that do different stuff. Um, and I'm on the board of directors of a company and, you know, I, am we, 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 we're in the digital transformation space. We help companies with digital transformation. So I read about digital transformation daily and every big consulting firm like PwC, Deloitte, McKinsey, uh, all of those big consulting firms are building multi-billion dollar digital practices because what they, they, they have the relationships with the C-suite on, you know, what is the, what is the company strategy and all of that. And, 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 and digital being on the, you know, priority list of almost every CEO in the world, because the world has gone digital, the world has gone social, the world has gone mobile. And now we're moving into artificial intelligence and deep learning and machine learning um, and, and predictive and all these other things. So all of this conversation, I see it happening at the highest level, the CIO, the chief digital officer, the CEO, the CMO, but the head of sales isn't involved. They're not part of this conversation generally. And that is the problem. Because how do you move from call, email, call, email to digital sales transformation if the head of sales is not part of the conversation? And I think we, we are going to start seeing the head of sales get their aha or their oh shit moment and realize that everything else around them is changing and that they have to change the approach. From a cultural uh, cultural perspective, though, how do you think that's going to happen? Is it just that they're going to have to uh, move on from that persona that you've already described earlier? Or do you think they're actually going to take a seat at the table and be part of the change? You'll see both, right? So you'll see some that say, this is just too much. And at this stage in my career, I don't need this. Um, and then you'll see those who are excited about it and uh, embrace it. And And I think you know, when I, when I look at some of the, you know, heads of sales, it's really when they're, when they look at their kids and they see what their kids are doing in digital and social and, and they realize, wow, this is the way the world is working. And 
I even think like Mark Hurd at Oracle, I think why he understood it was because he had, um, you know, teenage kids who made him see it, right? Like he couldn't not stare it in the face because it was, it was there. Uh, so I think that we'll see both. I think we'll see some just never adapt. And then um, the really good ones will, will realize there's some hard work to be done and, and they need to dig in and they will. This is great stuff, Jill. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. When we come back, it'll be time for the money round. So Jill, don't go away. And sell Sooners, don't you go away either. We'll be right back. Costello is pioneering the way companies build and execute sales playbooks. The platform helps sales reps prepare for calls, ask timely questions, tell relevant stories, and sync insights back to their CRM, all while showing managers and reps the gaps in every single deal so they can work them together to move them forward. With Costello, sales leaders can identify what's working on the front line and replicate success across their entire team. Learn more and see a demo at andcostello.com. That's A-N-D-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com. time for the money round. Jill, are you ready for the money round? I'm ready for the money round. All right. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? Culture of learning. Always be learning every day, all the time. Always be learning and take that learning and spread it. Teach others. Passion for teaching. If you were to start over today in sales, what would you spend the next 30 days doing? I would spend the next 30 days understanding the ideal customer profile of who my buyer was, understanding how they made purchase decisions, understanding where they are to be found, understanding the unique value proposition of our company, getting to know our customers, our happy customers and our unhappy customers. Um, I would I would really spend a lot of time understanding um, why customers buy from us, um, what is it that, that they have in common? Oops, that was not a quick answer. Customer, focus on the customer. <laughs> there we go. Uh, Jill, which phrase describes you best and why? I love to win or I hate to lose? I love to win. What's a book that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? I would say Tribes by Seth Godin is a great one. One of the many, but it's so hard to pick just one. Sales Sooners, if you'd like to check out Jill's uh, suggestion of Tribes by Seth Godin, head on over to salesooners.com slash book. There you can sign up for a 30-day trial of Audible and browse there over 150,000 selections. Again, that's salesooners.com slash book. Jill, what's the biggest piece of advice that you have for all the sales sooners out there grinding today? I, I, it's what makes me successful. It is the, the passion for helping people. It is the genuine, um, uh, desire to help other people. This is going to be an obvious question for you, but, uh, how could someone find you or connect with you if they wanted to after today's show? Yeah. The best way, do not send me an email. I hate email. It's the cockroach of the internet. Um, so the best way is to send me a personalized invite to connect on LinkedIn uh, with referencing that you heard the podcast or and or follow me on Twitter. Jill, this has been an amazing 30 minutes, actually 38. Thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed it. Awesome, Jim. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> 
Such an incredible conversation with Jill. And I want to get to my top takeaways. Number one, share. Having a genuine desire to help others, even if what you share is unrelated to what you're trying to sell, doing so allows you to show you care, which is what can drive future opportunities. Number two, focus on the customer. Knowing your buyer from every possible angle at both the company level and the personal level allows you to be relevant and timely. Number three, value focused. You have to realize that everything is only one Google search away these days. By constantly consuming information, you can have a better understanding of where and how to add value. That's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you have questions you'd like me to ask our guests, please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. Be sure to sign up for our email lists where we send out expanded content and previews of upcoming guests. And again, you can check out all the links and show notes for every episode at SalesTuners.com. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, let's make it rain. Thank you for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And they stay there.